Eagles Entertainment. This is Lane Johnson, and you're listening to the Eagles Insider Podcast with Dave Spadaro. Hi, Eagles everywhere, and welcome to the Eagles Insider Podcast presented by Lincoln Financial Group. I'm Eagles Insider Dave Spadaro, and yeah, free agency is only a couple weeks away. We've got some real action coming your way as the Eagles shape this roster for 2020. In today's podcast, which is a great one, we're going to talk about today's headlines. We're going to focus on linebacker, which is certainly a position of interest for the Eagles. We'll do that in just a little bit. First up, though, the Eagles reshaping their coaching staff in this offseason and adding a veteran offensive assistant by the name of Rich Scangarello. He's been around the league. He's a football lifer. And he's here to add a fresh perspective to the way the Eagles do things on offense. We heard from Doug Peterson last week. And the head coach talked about tweaking the offense, changing some of the concepts, adding to it. And Scangarello is certainly a valuable piece of what the Eagles have in mind for 2020. Let's go back to what Doug said last week about Scangarello and why he liked him so much and why he's part of this Philadelphia Eagles coaching staff. Rich Scangarello, uh, senior offensive assistant, um, really, really was intrigued by his by his resume, where he's sort of come from, how he's worked himself up in this league. He, he was a coordinator last year in Denver. Uh, he's worked with Kyle Shanahan you know, in San Francisco. He's worked with quarterbacks. He's been with Kyle in Atlanta. Uh, he started as a quality control coach, just like myself. Now it's time to meet the man himself, introducing Eagles senior offensive assistant, Rich Scangarello. Welcome to our next segment here of meeting the Eagles coaching staff. Our senior offensive assistant named so on February 6th. Please welcome Rich Scangarello to the Eagles Insider Podcast presented by Lincoln Financial Group. Hi, Rich. Thanks Good to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Thanks um, so I like to talk about football with football guys. Okay. And you're a football guy. You've been a football guy your whole life, right? Yep. Why? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, it's just the game's the greatest game on the planet. I mean, the, the competition of it, the strategy of it, it's a, you know, 11 guys on the field got to get it right. It's just um, all of it is a, it's just a great thing to be around, the camaraderie, the players, the coaches, the intensity of it all. I mean, there's nothing better. When did you first fall in love? Were you a little kid who loved a what fa- what was your favorite team growing up i, I i'm gonna have to not say that on on this podcast i think i'm gonna have to hold Uh-oh, out but g- the dallas cowboys no f- close but, uh, <laughs> but uh no i mean uh growing up uh in the bay area around the time when uh you know bill walsh's teams were really good awesome uh, teams you know it was niners were everywhere and that was a big part of what we did are you old enough to remember the catch uh, I am barely, but I am. Yes, yeah. I remember. I I can remember it. Yeah. Is your is your coaching a career based from a series of experiences you had as a player that got you into it, or was there some a mentor that kind of said, "Boy, I I think you've got a great football mind." Yeah, I would say that uh, the head coach at UC Davis, Bob Biggs. Um, it was at the time a Division two program. It was a perennial powerhouse. Um, actually set a record for most consecutive winning seasons at that level and won 25 straight conferences. And uh, coaching for him early in my career, uh, still to this day, I would argue he's the best quarterback developer I'd ever been around, evaluator. He taught me a tremendous amount, but really uh, 
he opened the door for me and um, he saw something in me and, uh, you know, really propelled me onto my career and, and, and have a lot of gratitude towards uh, what he gave me and how he empowered me and let me coach and, and be a part assistant? of this program. Your great assistant? I, start, I, I yeah. started as, yeah, and I was really his assistant with the quarterbacks. And then um, and then I was there for two years and I, I my very fortunate, my first two seasons there, the first one was Kevin Daft. Was a starting quarterback who ended up getting drafted by the Titans and playing in the NFL for a few years. I was 98, and then 99 was J.T. O'Sullivan who ended up mm-hmm. playing a, over a decade in the league. So our first, the first two quarterbacks we had were non-scholarship, drafted NFL guys, and uh, a great experience. I mean, so th- this coaching history is is pretty unique here. UC Davis graduate assistant, Idaho graduate mm-hmm. assistant. Yep. Get a promotion. Yeah, so um, a guy I coached with the first year at UC Davis was the defensive grad assistant Tom Cable, who's oh, yeah. now you know, who I legendary coached, offensive yeah, line coach. Yep, who's who I worked for as when he was the head coach of the Raiders. Um, Tom was uh, the new head coach, um, and he was looking for a quarterback guy. And he was really his offensive staff was made up of almost exclusively old line guys, and uh, it was a unique experience for me. And I went out um, and I GA'd for him, um, and in the end that. He brought me back to be his quarterback coach there, and really that uh, that was the experience that really completed my tree, kind of set me down the road on outside zone, and really had a huge impact on me. And then it was Carlton College, yeah, offensive coordinator, Idaho 2002-2003 yep. as a quarterback's coach. Back to UC Davis, wide receivers, co-offensive coordinator. And then the jump to the NFL in 2009 with the Oakland Raiders. You got it. Biggest difference, Rich, College to the NFL. What is the biggest difference as a coach? Well, I think it's today um, the biggest difference is the games are completely different. I just think that, um, you know, the back then there was parallels. And when it, you know first started coaching, um, you know, the, the offense and defensive identities were paralleled the NFL to some degree. The coaches could bounce back and forth and there was a similarity. Um, I think now they're completely different. I think that uh, college football has gone one direction and the NFL is held on to its roots um, for the most part. It's eking its way into our game, but it will never completely get there because of the way it's structured. Explain that in, in layman's terms. What is, what is the college game? Where is it strayed to? Spread field, spread the field, and, and, and win with speed? Yeah, I mean, basically, um, it's a spread. It has become a spread, no huddle world for the most part. Um, the hashes dictate a lot of things you can do in college football that you can't do in the NFL, which uh, really helps the spread football game. Um, and I also think that, um, you know, players that grow up playing the game, for me, it was Pop Warner, but now a quarterback that plays when he starts playing when he's 10 years old through high school into college, I mean, he never steps foot in a huddle. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't call plays. He doesn't visualize plays. He doesn't use motion and shifts and and the uh, the things that um, you still see in the NFL. So I think that that's. I mean, it's just the players coming into the league nowadays are they're completely different. What they've been taught, what their foundation is, and uh, it makes it difficult on us. But it also puts the uh, onus on the coaches that are really good teachers in the NFL to develop players quickly that can really get the most out of guys. I'm going to store that away for a little bit later on to talk about what from the what from college is, is now eking and leaking into the NFL and how that might apply to the Philadelphia Eagles in 2020. But first, I want to continue this pretty extraordinary litany of places that Go you've been. It. Oakland Raiders quality control coach, which is 
uh, a bottom of the rung, a bottom of the first rung of the ladder in the NFL, but incredible value. You learn basically how to do everything, right, as a quality control coach. Yeah, and I was very fortunate. Like, that was the only position uh, Tom Cable could hire me in. But he, I really, yeah, I did a lot. I did the grunt work, but in essence, as far as a game planner and doing other things, I really had equal say in the building with guys like Paul Hackett and Ted Tolner. And um, it was a great experience and, you know, it was working for Mr. Davis when he was still alive. That whole experience is something that you know really puts a is a neat part neat to be, have yeah. been a part of. How, yeah. how how visible was Al Davis around the Oakland facility? He was very visible. I mean, he was still uh, his mind was very sharp even at the end. Um, he was on top of it, and uh, you know it was the Raider way is a different way at that point. But um, but those experiences were great, and um, there are things that he believed into this day. Um, that everyone's talking about this year in the NFL when you watch the Chiefs and the Niners. It's speed, you know. He believed in it, and the truth of it is it's, uh, there were things that I learned from that building that I'll always remember that helped me in this profession. After the Raiders, you go back to college, assistant head coach at Millsaps, mm-hmm. as, uh, along with being offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach there. What was that experience like going back to college, Rich? Uh, yeah, that was a tough deal. I mean, the way the Raider thing went down mm-hmm. and uh, kind of how things played out with transition in the staff, I kind of got stuck late in the season in between. My buddy was the head coach, um, ended up having a great experience with him, had some good players, and uh, it was good. It was nice to be in the South and to see how that was done and all that, You too. turn everything into a positive, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, might, why not? I mean, hey, that's the whole deal. I mean, you've been running around all over the place. Northern Arizona, offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach for three seasons. Uh, back to the NFL with the Atlanta Falcons, quality control coach. Back to college as an offensive coordinator at Wagner yeah. and excellent success at Wagner. Yeah, and in NAU, we had a lot of success, too. Yeah. And, and San Francisco, then the NFL, San Francisco 49ers quarterbacks coach, 2017, 2018. Who was the quarterback 2017? I'm trying to think here. Well, we started, it was Brian Hoyer, then it was uh, C.J. Beathard, then it was Jimmy Garoppolo. And, okay. then, and then the next year it was Jimmy, then it was C.J., then it was Nick Mullins. Okay. It's so hard to win with multiple quarterbacks, isn't it? Last year there was three of them too, so. <laughs> is, <yeah>. there any, <laughs> is there any sport that is more reliant on a single player than the game of football and the quarterback position? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. It, not only are you reliant, it's also probably the toughest thing in all sports to do. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, you got to have a good one. Last season uh, in Denver, you start out with Joe Flacco. As off- you're the offensive coordinator, Joe Flacco, and then you have some success with Drew Locke. Uh, you become an offensive coordinator in the NFL, and you're addressing a large group of men, an experience of growth, I would imagine you would see that as. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it didn't play out the way, obviously, uh, I wanted it or probably, you know, our expectations or what they were and whatever happened, happened. But uh, in the end, the experience that year taught me, made me grow as a coach. It taught me a lot about what's important in this profession. It taught me a lot about the building I want to be in in this profession. And it's probably the reason I, of the opportunities I had, this one was the best fit. And wow, I'm excited, so excited to be here. Yeah, how, how did it happen, Rich? How did you, you know... How does the process happen? You uh, are aware that the Eagles are looking for a position and your agent contacts the Eagles? I mean, how does it happen? Yeah, this, this one was an interesting one, and, I, and there's some stuff probably that I don't even know how it exactly fully played out. But um, because of the timing of how I, I left Denver, um, it didn't happen right at the end of the year. Everything was kind of was good, but there were some things going on. Um, and then – 
having missed on other opportunities because of that, then sitting back um, when it did happen and not being in a hurry, wanting to make sure that the next decision was about being with strong people and a strong organization where there was common unity that uh, was fighting for the same things and the same directions. Um, wanted to be very smart and tactical about where I made my next decision and, and really put myself in a good place. So I was able to interview at uh, you know Cleveland and do some different things. And I was talking to you know different coaches who are head coaches that are my closest friends that I had opportunities to go with them. Um, I think uh, I think that my name had come up probably here a couple times, a couple different ways through different people, and um, it just ended up circling back around to Doug and we had an amazing conversation one day and flew out that night on the plane and spent a day out here and it was just a just the feel in the building was outstanding had you met Doug previously I had not so you have a conversation and you can just you can just tell during the course of that conversation that you're on the same page as far as an offensive philosophy yeah I think it was a lot of things I think that um you know, it's just something I've always admired how he's handled this. Uh, um, you know, it's a tough city to coach in, and there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. But I think uh, he's done an outstanding job of, you know, giving credit where it's deserved, handling the pressure, developing his quarterback, building a winner, being a part of it, um, fighting through the ups and the downs. And he's handled everything with class. He's got a great reputation in the league. He thinks from a quarterback's perspective. He was a quarterback. Um, to me, those are very important elements of being successful in the NFL. People have always told me that Doug's really good at calling plays, setting up plays. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what that means. How do you determine that? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's an instinctive element of calling plays that are very important and not everyone has it. Um, you know, I've been around some really good ones and um, it's a, there's definitely a feel. But I think sometimes um, having been a former quarterback like he has, I think um, – being around some really good people, having a clear vision for how he wants his offense to look. I think all those things, um, you know, can make it more rhythmic and easier for you. And um, he's got he's gotten his quarterbacks to play very well, and um, he's done an outstanding job. And so uh, I think that's led to a lot of success here. If you could, without giving away secrets, but people want to know, I, I would be remiss if I did not ask the question, what is a senior offensive assistant? <laughs> uh, you are not going to call the plays. Doug calls the plays. Um, what, what is your role? Yeah, I mean, that that was the great part about this opportunity and I uh, was so excited that, that they saw something in me. It's, um, you know, I think that uh, they have a great foundation. Um, there's some great players here and I feel like, um, you know, just to be the uh, guy that can help in the building connect the dots. And, um, you know, I, I don't think that, um, you know, my experiences with, with uh, maybe the Kyle Shanahan tree of things and things like that and perspective um, – can help. I think that uh, it's you know it's just a matter of finding my role to uh, to allow everyone, player or coach, to help them be the best version they can be and make it cohesive. And that's uh, that's the exciting part about being in a great organization like this. So let's circle back around. We're going to talk about Carson Wentz and Miles Sanders and some of the pieces that we know are going to be in place here for 2020 in just a moment. But from 1998, you start coaching to now. What has changed? in the NFL in terms of what NFL what an NFL offense looks like is there is there cyclical Marty Morningweg the former offensive coordinator here always used to use the term cyclical in de in describing the way things work in the NFL is that how you see it yeah i think there are some things that are cyclical i also think that there were um 
for a lot of years in the NFL, um, when new things came up, there was a lot of maybe some resistance or whatnot, and things got cycled out of the league. It just just the way that people thought. I think uh, it's just the game has been forced to be in different directions, um, and that'll and that's eked its way in the NFL. And there's those things are here to stay. Um, as long as the rules allow you to do certain things, you're crazy not to take advantage of the things you can. Um, so I think that that's. Uh, you know, part of how the NFL has evolved and people are less resistant to say, yeah, no, that's just a college thing. Now, there are many things from college football that flat don't translate and I think will never make their for way example, here. For example, just for... Well, I just think the biggest issue is in the NFL, you're dealing with small rosters. I right. mean, you don't get to practice with 100 guys. You don't get to have long practices all week long. I mean, basically, you walk through what you do on game day and you have to take care of a pro and his body and all those things. And so... um I think that forces you into a different game. We're playing in a game where possessions are everything, where you, you might have 55 to 60 plays a game. Um, in the college game, possessions come and go, and you play a 90 – it's a four-hour game, and you play 95 plays. So it's just um, – it's a different animal, you know, in that respect. But I think that there are concepts and ideas that quarterbacks are comfortable with that, um, that fit within the NFL and that people are using and taking advantage of. When you looked at what the Eagles did last year, I mean, basically a roster that was offensively for sure decimated by injury and the way Doug and the coaching staff changed things around a bit. Um, what kind of lessons do you learn from from that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the trait of um, of off the best offensive coordinators and play callers, but I also think that's a trait of offensive systems that are most functional in the NFL. I think that... Um, the ability to adapt to the skill set of the players you have and the ability to adapt to overcome injuries and not um, throw it out the window are, are a big deal. And I don't know that everyone can pull that off or looks at it that way, but I've been fortunate enough to be around somebody who that, that it was, that's how he naturally thought and Kyle Shanahan. And I think that that's something that Doug and the offense and the flexibility and the types of players that are here um, allowed them to um, – overcome and and evolve and be very efficient so for the let's break this down this may be a dumb question i apologize if it is but help me understand how much of a difference is there from like the bill walsh tree of x's and o's and scheme to the kyle shanahan way he does things to i don't know who's another sean payton okay when it comes to mind is yeah. there a big difference and significant difference I, I I do think that um, everyone has kind of gone their own direction to some degree, and they have things that they truly believe in. But I think at the the core, what you when you talk about West Coast roots and West Coast, it's a it's a systematized way of teaching, and there's a system to how you install, and um, there are parameters to your scheme. Now, what that scheme looks like, I think all of us have kind of gone in our own direction. Sometimes that's the players you have and whatnot. Sometimes it's what you believe in. Um, so I think that there are some very – Sean McVay, like some very specific mm -hmm. differences. But ultimately there are themes with – in certain coaching trees that always stay the same. Do coaches spend – just in general spend the offseason studying the other trees to kind of poach what they might be able to poach? Yeah, I think that the with the access of uh, information now and video, I think we're all studying each other constantly, even during the year. I mean, it is truly a copycat league, and 
you, you know, you see people do different things or whatever. People are quick to cycle through it in the league, and you see the same plays and concepts show up all the time. And I think, uh, you know, obviously here in 2000, the success that was here in the Super Bowl run and um, kind of with two different quarterbacks and the style of play, I think everyone studied that that year. Um, I think obviously Kansas City, everyone's enamored with how things go and all that. But uh, the reality of it is it takes good coaches, good players, and, and a real tight system to to really bring it to life. Let's talk about some of the good players who are here in Philadelphia first. You get to work with Carson Wentz. We've seen him now for four years. We love him. What makes him what we think to be a special quarterback? Well, I, I mean – to play quarterback at a high level in the NFL, it's the toughest thing on the planet to do. And that requires a guy who can stand in there and under duress, show toughness and strength in the pocket, which he does. Um, somebody that has the arm talent to pull off the throws that are required under duress as well or off schedule. And I think the ability to process under duress. And, and notice I say all that under duress. I think that that's the league, like the pass rush, uh, the, the pressures, the, the changing coverages post-snap. All those things have to be processed quickly, information. And there's about 15 or less of them on the planet that can do it at a very high level. Unfortunately, one of them is here in Philadelphia. And I think that that's uh, – it's, it's hard to find those guys, and Philadelphia's this organization's done such an outstanding job over the years at continually doing that at that position, and I think um, it's a testament to how they, they draft and think around here, and I think finding a guy like Carson is, uh, has been great to have a you know, corner piece uh, type the, uh, player that you can count on for years, and he's done a great job. If there are only 15 of those players in the world, and you were king of the football world, how would you increase that number? Could you increase that number from 15 to 40 over the course of five or six, seven years? Well, that's that's a good question. I mean, that, honestly, that's a great uh, – you could talk about that for hours. But the, re the reality of it is I think the league is, in a sense, adapting to that. You know, I think you can see um, just by drafting a certain type of quarterback, you can see what, uh, you know, Baltimore has done. You can see what Arizona has done. Um, I mean, they have catered to the style of play of an explosive type player that they have calling the shots. And, uh, you know, that is unique to this league. It, you know, you, you things cycle through, but you're seeing multiple ways to get it done. That is increasing your odds of not just having the typical drop back passer. Um, you know, the, the, the great players, the Phillip Rivers, the Tom Brady's, the Drew Brees's, those traditional pocket quarterbacks, um, it's getting harder and harder in this league to be that style of play unless you have an elite processing mind um, and you have uh, the right offensive system that fits your skill set. And if you have that, you can still do it that way and be the top player in the league, the top offense in the league. But if you don't, it's very difficult to be successful if you can't use your legs and do other things. What's more rare, Rich, <laughs> having that elite processing mind as a quarterback or having that elite athletic skill set that allows you to have the footwork, the toughness, the arm strength in the pocket? Well, I think that, and again, that's a great question, but I, I would say that 20, 20 the yeah, no, and I love anything. it. I, but yeah, 15 <laughs> years ago, you, you know, guys didn't play as much with their legs and the, the college game and the high school game didn't allow them to evolve in that way. So you were always looking for the prototypical pocket passer. I think now you evaluate different traits and offenses have more flexibility and and you're not looking for that guy necessarily. You can have a stallion that you can let loose in a different way. And, and I think that that's where a lot of these 
quarterbacks have have evolved or the game has kind of evolved in that direction. So I think there's a balance. I think that, um, you know, it's hard. It'll be harder and harder to find guys and evaluate the mental side of it because the way they're playing in college. And you have to be very creative now to not miss on those attributes because you still need those qualities regardless of the athlete you are. Makes me think if I were king of the NFL world, I wonder if you could create this mega um, developmental, you know, camp, if you will, or whatever, academy, and have kids from the ages of, and it's nuts, I know, from the ages of 12 to 17 get in there and develop those kinds of abilities. Maybe that would increase the pool of quarterbacks. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting you say that because it's uh, the best example I can put to you is this is um, to talking about the Bill Walsh and the West Coast and kind of the roots of that, that the West Coast system. When you, when you were a young quarterback and you picked up a football, regardless of the age, from six to whatever, um, you typically got under a center, dropped back, and threw the football. And you learned to throw with a, a rhythm and a timing to a route that went with you leaving a center. Um, it didn't matter. That's just how the game was taught, and that was always the starting point. Um, now you get a guy like Drew Locke. I mean, Drew had never taken a snap under center Ever, and, That's incredible. And, and so he has no real timing element in these offenses that they're playing in. They're throwing the ball on the field, and they're just throwing it around. And it's hard for a quarterback to then have the discipline and timing that goes with playing in a pro offense. Um, they've lost years of that feel and development. Um, so now you're reversing the process. And it's exactly it. There's nowhere for them to go to get that. So that's where you have to be very also creative in the evaluation process of can they create that timing element that they've never had before quickly yeah. bef- so that they can be successful for you now in the NFL. And that's a real challenge. Yeah, and that's what I think when I, when I saw Carson come in here in 2016, his ability to get get through everything so quickly – it was freaky. Like that that's actually what stood out the most. Because I don't think he had taken many snaps under center in his career either. Well, he the the great again, I, I this is something I really appreciate about Carson. I feel very strongly about in development of young quarterbacks that helps him early on is from what I understand, he did play under center at North Dakota State, which helped him. They did have West Coast I know that some of those guys that have gone through their West Coast roots in their offense, which helped them to play with timing and the and the rhythm that's so important to the NFL. And he was a smaller player physically that developed later. And for quarterbacks, that's always a good thing. Why? Because when you don't learn at an early age to always just throw with arm strength, when you're the 12 year old who's already six foot two and throws the ball hard, you, you learn the you lose the anticipatory skills that go with developing as a quarterback. You'll always be able to make it up with throwing the ball hard. I think guys that learn to throw the ball early because they have to to be the quarterback, and then they grow, their hands get bigger, they get stronger, and now they can throw with velocity, that's when you have something special. And I think Carson's an example of that. From what I understand, he was a smaller guy. When he went to college, he was later to grow and all that, and I think that that probably really helped him in his development as a player. Okay. Uh, Let's move off quarterback and talk about running back Miles Sanders. Terrific rookie season. Uh, What have you seen from Miles, a kid who seems like he can do it all? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's the exactly you hit it on the head. I mean, when you can be a pass catcher, you have the size to be a pass protector, and you have the elusiveness to be an every down runner. Um, it just again that it frees up your offense in a lot of directions, and they become very. You know, I always feel like the running back will always be the easiest guy to create a one-on-one matchup that's advantageous for you offensively in situational football. It's just the easiest one to do. So when you have that kind of player, I think it really helps. Eagles with two personnel, 12 personnel using uh, Zach Ertz and Dallas Goddard so effectively at the tight end position. A, when did the 12 personnel, Mr. Historian, really take off in the NFL? And B, how much are you looking forward to working with those two? Yeah, I mean that's I mean really the way the um the game is evolving with um more spread type aspects and people playing more nickel when you have tight ends that have receiver traits but have the physicality of a tight end um you can use that in your advantage uh, tactically almost all the time and that's a real uh, strength of this team this offense and it's it's why they've been really good on third down and efficient in the red zone scoring touchdowns and um having those two types of weapons it's a uh, it's really a uh, it's a neat thing to have, and very few teams have that luxury. When did the 12 personnel really take off in the NFL? Do you have any idea? Uh, when did it, like in your I, recall, when did it start? Well, I mean, it's um, – I think the – you know, you think of Gibbs back in Washington and the and the H-back type move around tight ends they had. Um, really, at, at the time, the ability to play them in line or to play them off the ball and to motion them across and to use them in pass protection to help tackles and things like that use them in play action. I think that was a the one that I can think of that probably was ahead of its time um, using tight ends, um, multiple tight ends on the field. And I think that um, – I just think that it's uh, – with bigger receivers and spread offenses in college football, you can, you know, develop them into pass-catching tight ends and, and stuff like that. So I think that uh, – I just think that having versatility in those guys really helps an offense uh, in today's age. This is great stuff. Uh, you're new to Philadelphia. Have you had any taste at all of the city? You know, the only the, – the, my only real taste had been when we come out here to play, so I hadn't really spent much time here. But uh, I've heard nothing but great things uh, about this, how it's a sleepy city that people don't think about how for food and great, great you know, getting around downtown and just um, proximity to things and all that. So uh, I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to be back in the East Coast. And, you know, you, you mentioned that it was um, – uh, not a tough place to play, but it's an intense place to play. That's what makes it so great, I think. I yeah. mean, the Philadelphia Eagles mean something to the – the Philadelphia Eagles, let's correct – the Philadelphia Eagles mean a lot to the fans here. And that is a beautiful thing. I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, I think I coached in San Francisco, and I'd go to dinner with – Kyle Shanahan and no one would recognize us, uh, you know. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen <laughs> yeah, here. Not, yeah. Around here, you know, it's just that's that's the when people are passionate about it, it it's it's like playing in the Southeast Conference or something, man. And when it's that important to you, um, when you're a part of that and you're winning, there's nothing better. Rich Scangarello, team uh, senior offensive assistant. Welcome to Philadelphia, man. Appreciate it. Nice you. to talk to you. Nice to get yeah. to know you. Looking forward to working with you this year and. Many years to come. Let's go, let's go have some success in 2020. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Rich, thanks for coming on. Many thanks to Rich Scangarello for his time. Interesting talk about offense and the evolution and Carson Wentz. And we'll see how that all comes together for the Eagles in 2020. Time now for our today's headlines. And the headline is this. And it happened a while ago. 
but we're going to address it right here. The Eagles releasing linebacker Nigel Bradham, 30 years old, played four years in Philadelphia, started from the day he arrived and was really a key part of the Super Bowl 52 defense. Good luck to Nigel as he moves on in his NFL career. Now we turn our attention to the Eagles and the linebacker positions and how much value they put into the linebacker spots because they really haven't invested high in the draft much at all in the 2010s. They drafted Jordan Hicks in round three, 2015. Michael Kendricks, 2012, was a second-round draft pick. But otherwise, you know, you look at the roster now and – Nathan Gary, a fifth-round draft pick. T.J. Edwards, not drafted. So if those are your two kind of leading, quote-unquote, candidates, along with Duke Riley, acquired in a trade in 2019, along with Alex Singleton, who was on the practice squad for much of last year and then came up to the active roster late in 2019. So clearly the Eagles are going to add at the linebacker position. But it really is interesting, in this day and age, where defenses have readdressed how they feel about linebackers. If you've got a 3-4 defense and you're rushing the quarterback, yeah, it makes all kinds of sense to get that stud edge rusher. But how many 4-3 teams are really investing in their linebackers? I'd certainly say the Cowboys, who've done a great job building up their linebacker core, part of a disappointing defense in 2019. How much will the Eagles put forward to a position group that sees less and less time with three players on the field. Defenses have to react to the spread offense, so you want smaller, faster players to participate and play well in coverage as well as support the run. You've got teams playing in nickel and dime alignments as offenses bring in more wide receivers. So at a time when you're playing with two linebackers on the field more than 50% of the time, are you going to go hog wild bringing in a linebacker via free agency or in the draft? So I think we're really going to get a sense, and I don't have the answer, of just how much the Eagles value the linebacker group starting March 18th when free agency opens. They gave it a shot last year with LJ Fort in free agency, signed him, after he played with Cleveland and Pittsburgh, didn't work out for LJ in Philadelphia. He found a home with the Baltimore Ravens. Certainly the Eagles need help at the linebacker positions. But just how much free agency money or draft capital will they throw at that position? And for you Eagles fans, as you look at the list of quote-unquote needs for this team, where do you place linebacker in that list? Just some food for thought in today's headlines. I'm Eagles Insider Dave Spadaro. That will do it for this Eagles Insider podcast presented by Lincoln Financial Group. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't subscribed, please do so already. Rate us, pass the word, get it out there. We are rolling along. We're very happy with the direction we're going with the Eagles Insider podcast, but we always want your feedback. Thanks to Peter Kelly for putting it all together. And thanks to all of you for joining us as we get into the month of March, which is Free Agency 2020. Everyone have yourselves a great Eagles day, and fly, Eagles, fly. E-A-T-L-E-S, Eagles!